0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: How do you go about revising your work, your country, and yourself? I'm Jamil Smith, and I write for Vox about identity, culture, and civil rights. And I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Since May, I've been reading, over and over again, an essay that appeared in Vox's The Highlight. It's about repair, revision, and renewal, themes that are often at the heart of our national conversations about race and racism. With as many enduring inequities and institutional failings as the United States still has, the nation is undoubtedly unfinished. The passage that stays with me the most from that essay is this, quote, The metastasized, excused unwellness in white families— is responsible for anti-Black terror happening in this nation's schools, prisons, hospitals, neighborhoods, and banks. This is the work of folks who despise revision nearly as much as they despise themselves. End quote. It's a powerful piece, and that's one of many reasons I wanted Kiese Lehman, who wrote it, to join me for my first solo episode of Vox Conversations. Recently, he re-released both his first novel, Long Division, and the essay collection entitled How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. Kiese reacquired both works from the publisher and revised them according to his original vision. That goes to show you that even one of the best writers in America today embraces what he calls the dynamic practice of revisitation. None of this is new for Kiese, whom I've known for many years. If you're familiar with his work, especially Heavy his award-winning memoir, then you might feel as though you know him yourself. We're going to talk a lot about writing and surviving and how writing helps us survive. We'll discuss his revised and revived novel and essay collection and why revision is so necessary for America and Americans alike. Kiese, thank you, man, for coming on today. Welcome to Vox Conversations, man.
2: Hey, Jamil, thank you for having me on Vox Conversations. I look forward to really getting into it today with you.
1: (laughs) Likewise, man. Likewise. I want to start by talking about words. I think a lot about language. You think a lot about language and how it enables us to do both what we do for a living and what we do to live, really. Right. Growing up, Black boy in Mississippi, in Jackson, how were you first taught to use your words?
2: Uh, it was the sound. Right. It was I was I was taught to use my words to get people's attention. You know, I think you can use words to make yourself invisible. I was the only kid in my family with my mom or my grandma, my auntie. So, you know, sometimes they would be like, hey, you got to be quiet. But I learned early there's ways you could use words so it appeared that you were quiet, even if you weren't. Yeah. So, you know, my, my first foray into words was trying to decide, like, how present I wanted to be and how invisible I wanted to be. My mother. You know, she had me when she was really young and she was at Jackson State when she had me. She came back to teach at Jackson State like five years after she had me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was obsessed with with like written words. And so then I had to start my, my sort of writing and reading regimen, which was sort of brutal.
1: Yeah, I, I totally feel the, the connection with the choice to be invisible because I called my column Invisible Man after the Ellison novel. Yes, I thought like this is a place where I can choose how I'm perceived. And. I didn't necessarily have that option. I didn't make that choice. right? And so given that, um, you know, we're talking about revision and the re-release of these two works, long division and how to slowly kill yourself and others in America. The opportunity to revise what you've already put out there uh, offers also an opportunity to look at yourself. So, I mean, first, what happened and why did you end up 10, Ten times what they paid for, <laughs> for the rights to your books. <laughs> oh, so happy! I can laugh at that now, fam. That's
2: that's so interesting. Like you asking me that, and my and my body's reaction was to laugh. <laughs> the short version is, I signed a terrible deal, and I had to sign a terrible deal because none of the publishers in New York really wanted me, and the one that did want me, as you know, they bought the book to signed the book. Then they asked me to change the racial, well, take out the racial politics Mm. after they told me to, you know, change the narrator from black person to white person, change the place, change the setting. But when they told me to take the racial politics out, I was like, all right, I gave them the little money back. But then I was just out there. And, you know, Jasmine, my friend Jasmine Ward, had just published his book, Where the Line Bleeds, with this press out of Illinois. And I just sent them like three books one Thursday. And I think maybe Friday or Monday, they hit me back being like, we want to publish and they offered me a thousand dollars for the essay collection, and they offered me I think two or three thousand I think for for a long division. And so sometimes we always talk about these book deals. Whoa. Yeah, bro, I signed a two book low four figure book deal, and then those books went on to sell like sixty thousand copies. And you know, yeah. um, and also signed signed away my TV rights, I signed away my um, oh. movie rights, I signed away every rate possible. But I thought after all of that sort of rejection my assumption was the dude who I was sort of working with, the editor, the publisher, whatever, I was like, oh, he's my friend. And so a few years later, when I went back to try to first revise the books, because I, I, I wanted them to be different than how they initially came out, the dude was like, no, we can't go back in there and do that. And I was like, okay, well, I want my books back. And then the guy was like, all right, well, you got to make me an offer. And then right. I, and I was like, what? And then at first he charged <laughs> me like $300,000 or something. And then eventually, thankfully for my, my agent, PJ Mark. My editor, Kathy Belden, people at Scribner, we worked, 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 and we got it down to $50,000. So I sold my books for 4000 both of them. I then paid 50000 to get them back to publish them the way I wanted to.
1: Man, as far as I'm concerned, bro, you you made a profit. <laughs> because, <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, honestly, after you got them back, what was your feeling? What were your emotions like?
2: Jamil, you know, that's a great question. Um It's so interesting because I want to I'm still like smiling and I want to say I was so happy, but I was so happy. But I was also so mad, not because of the fifty thousand dollars necessarily, but because of my, you know, sort of naivete slash ignorance and stupidity. I was mad at myself. I was very mad at, at the person who I thought was a friend. But more than anything, I was just disappointed in myself. And then after I voiced all of that and, you know, I wrote an initial like scathing ether about the dude. And then my editor, and my agent were like, OK, KSA, we know you needed to write that. Now you need to think about if you want that out in the world. And I thought about it. You know, they thought I was going to think about it for a day. I thought about it for like two weeks and I was like, all right, let me go write something else. So I was I was a mixture of like elated and. Um, I wanted to get him. I wanted to get him. I wanted to use my words to get him. That's what I initially felt. I wanted to James Baldwin, how James Baldwin did Richard Wright or how, you know, I I wanted I had a piece. I had an elaborate four part piece. Yeah. And then thankfully, like people who actually who I work with, who actually do love and who love me were just like you needed to write that. Now, ask yourself if you want to deal with the repercussions of putting it out in the world. Right. and i did not i mean i actually did want that smoke i always want to smoke but but they were just like don't <laughs> you know you know they 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 encouraged me not to do that and it was a great it was a great suggestion i didn't need that that essay out there in the world um it it yeah i'm glad i didn't put that essay out
1: and so much writing that we we all do whether it's like the piece that goes nowhere whether it's journal entries all this writing is just for us. Yes. <laughs> and that's so essential. I'm really glad hearing your story that you did that for yourself because that you got it out of your body. Absolutely. I think, you know, especially as Black writers, man, we are in the business of opening up ourselves to not just the reading public, but also, you know, to, to the pain that we've already experienced. Right. And I can only imagine, I haven't written a book yet, but the pain of all of that, all of this assembled in this experience, you had to revisit that. What then is revising? Mm. How did that become a good thing? Because I know you wrote about it in that LitHub essay. You called it the rugged majesty of revision. <laughs> yeah. What did you What did you mean by that? You know, I think I
2: was um, lucky in that. Long Division as a novel is essentially about the need for all of us to revise, but the unfair burden we put on young Black children to revise adult mistakes, right? So, like, revision was already something I was, like, taken by and working with. And then at the beginning of the heavy, I write a letter to my mom and I tell her, like, we owe it to each other to commit to to revising and talking to each other about what we revised. So those two texts were already, like, steeped in revision. mm mm-hmm. And then it was sort of like, can I walk the walk, right? Like, I, you know, like anybody who publishes a book five or six years later, you're gonna look back at that book and be like, damn, that could have been better. And I think a lot of us, we just try to build on, like not make the same mistakes or build on something we did poorly in our next creation. And I did that with Heavy. But at the same time, there were just some essays that I just couldn't stand by anymore ethically. You know what I'm saying? Like there were some essays and there were some there were some chapters in Long Division that I just thought ethically would not sound. And then of course, aesthetically, there was just a lot of different things that I wanted to change. But how to slowly specifically, you know, there, was, there were some essays in there that I kind of just feel like I was very messy and sloppy with. And I wanted to take those out, not just to like erase them, but to work on them further and put them out in a different way. But the main thing though, to tell you the truth, Jamil, it's like after toiling for like 15 years, you know, I graduated graduate school in 2001. You know what I mean? My books come out in 2013. And, you know, when I graduated grad school, everybody was like, oh, kids are going to have a book tomorrow. You know, I did very well in grad school. So after failing to get my books out in the world for 12, 13 years, I think I owed it to myself to make sure that I wanted those books out the way I wanted them, no matter what, no matter what a publisher told me, editor, anybody. And so now that I'm thinking through it, I think it was like a way of loving the process and that process almost killed me. Mm. But I think I just needed to revisit that and revisit the work that I was doing during the process of trying to keep myself alive. Cause you know, you just start to feel every time you get told no, as a writer, if you put your entire identity into writing, you're being told that you ain't worth shit, right? And that's my fault for hearing it that way. But I just wanted to love myself enough to go back and change the art I created during that time.
1: Some of the essays that you either deleted or had to seriously revise that you felt like you couldn't stand by anymore. What Can you be more specific about what that was and why? Ooh,
2: yeah. Like I, I'd written this one essay about Kanye and black men who purported to be feminists. And the way the essay was going was like, I was trying to say that like, you know, Kanye at the point at the time I wrote it was, I thought he was doing incredible things with like song structure, not what he said, but how he made songs. And, but you know, early on in Kanye, if you, if you look not even that deeply, you can see Kanye's brutal blind spot was gender. And I was trying to do that thing where like, I, I want to knock him as a black feminist, but at the same time I needed to put the oh so perceptive like flashlight into myself and talk about my complicity and i was talking about my my grandfather who said some really fucked up shit about my grandmother while she was sick i couldn't stand behind what i said about kanye you know after kanye did what he did and i couldn't stand behind some of what i said about myself as a cisgender like black man and a cisgender black man who purports to be a feminist huh.
1: um in what way did you, you felt like you couldn't stand by it
2: well, I like it was weird because I was trying to do this thing where I was like, look, it's so easy to diss Kanye because, look, I'm a black feminist and I did that. But I was trying to critique that. But even in critiquing that, the essay is still a lot more like, look at me, I'm special when that actually was not at all what it was supposed to be. And so in revision for that essay, because I revised that essay and then I was like, all right, I'm gonna keep this for something else. I realized that I was using Kanye Sort of to not deal with my relationship with the man who married my grandmother, who was my grandfather, and so I think it's easy sometimes we consider ourselves black men and feminists. It's so easy if you bring in anybody else who's not feminist to sort of just take shots at them to feel better about ourselves. And I was doing a little bit of that too much, even though the essay was supposed to be about how easy it is to do that. I I just didn't write the essay
1: well. I remember what Tanahasi told me about why he quit Twitter in an interview I did with him last year mm-hmm. and he's saying that, you know, I, I was just going on there basically to, to feel clever, basically. To like, it's, right. it's like a place to, to flex like your right. intellect. Right. And that isn't what this is about, you know? Right. And I think about that when you, when you mentioned being a self-identified feminist, but at the same time, it's not some merit badge that we get awarded like a Cub right. Scout or something. Right, like, right. You know, it's something that not only you have to earn in terms of like that kind of ideological position, but you also have to maintain it.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Jamal. And I think it's easier to accept the work of maintenance when you look at the fact that like everyone who calls themselves a feminist, regardless of gender, race or place in some way, Lives their lives contradictory. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's important for me to accept that that's that's not specific to just black men. And for me, I mean, that, that might not even sound like something new to you or anybody else. But for me, once I understand that everyone who calls themselves feminist has to do the work of making sure that our actions and our supported like theory align, it just became easier for me to walk away from these battles where I'm up there like. It is I, the black feminist man. You know, like, <laughs> shut up, bro. <bruh. laughs> it is not you, bro. Like, here I am speaking cares. from the
1: mountaintop of black feminism. <laughs>
2: right, right. Yes. But part of that is because you get patted on the back so much. You know what I mean? Like, it's like we do white people. You know what I mean? Like, you hear white, like, bro. you know, like, if a white person says anti racism, I'm like, oh my God, like, are they down with us? Like, no, bro. Like, they just said anti racism. You know what I'm I, saying?
1: Like, I feel this all the time, bro. It's like, these folks, like you know, they post the black squares. They get the verbiage down, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, you know, they're taking the remedial course, <laughs> right, right? We as black people are forced to master whiteness. We're forced to be fluent in it. Fluent, okay? fluent from jump. Like we could go all around the world and speak the language of American whiteness because yes. we get it. We understand it. We know how it's perceived. We know how they operate. Because we have to learn it in order to learn how to navigate and survive. They don't have to learn about blackness in the same way. They're not required no. to, especially in order to survive. And so when all of this is thrust upon them, whenever one of us is killed by a police officer or one of us may be elected president, there's always this kind of reckoning that's done for you a know, week, a couple weeks, a couple months. Last year, we had the longest one I've seen, but at the end, you know, like you said in that Vox essay that you put out, if we want to do the repair, we want to talk about fairness. It has to be on an individual level as well as a national level.
2: It does. It absolutely does. And and we have to not just ask hard questions, but be willing to give hard, wrong answers, you know, and that's the thing about what you just said, Jamil, is that the ill shit is not that white folks don't know us. Right. It's that they don't know themselves and then they ask us for help. Do you know what I mean? Like, can you help me see myself? Yeah. Can you help me? And I think if we slow that down often, it comes from wealthy or at least like upper class white people who are like, if we really unpack what they're saying is like, I had the quote unquote best education money could buy. <laughs> Often I came from two parent homes. There was wealth in my in my home and my society. And I always use Trump to show over and over again that the things that they say we should aspire to, wealth, two parent homes, quote unquote, good schools, uh, nah, fam. nah. Like we have to, we have to recalibrate. Like why we perpetually like want that sort of normalcy when we see over and over again that that normalcy is catastrophic. But I don't think we can even get there unless we think about the fact that often we, as cisgender men, are asking when well, we're not asking enough. But often we do ask. We're asking women and femmes to tell us about ourselves, and white people are doing the same thing mm-hmm. when it comes to race. But the, the problem is my granny was trying to talk to white people to she, whose houses she cleaned about them in the nicest, most Christian way possible. And they gave her fucking $2.50. You know what I mean? Like, so, so this is where I think the re- reparation and the repair come in. It's like when people are perpetually teaching you about themselves, teaching you about you, mm-hmm. not, just, not just Baldwin, not just Morrison, not just Ibram, but the people, the essential workers day to day are being asked in so many ways, verbal and nonverbal, to teach the elites about themselves and sometimes people are stepping up to do that but like what is the what's the pay what's what's the payout we did all that work and then we come out of it and now y'all talking about critical race theory some shit that probably like 1500 people in the country actually understand it's ridiculous bro yeah it's ridiculous and and, and, and i and i grew up on critical race theory but i can tell uh a sham when i see one and critical race theory is not the sham these Republicans understanding media are throwing critical race theory out there. Something that again, 95% of black people would not be able to tell you what that means, but this is the smoking gun now. Come on, bro.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's just decode that for everybody. They're, they're not trying to necessarily ban critical race theory. They're trying to make blackness even further ostracized from the American story. And what happens when you remove someone from a story? They're not part of the narrative anymore. And it makes it that much easier to dehumanize them, to mistreat them, to discriminate against them. And, you know, we have seen just now this study recently from the Othering and Belonging Institute, uh, this is a research hub at UC Berkeley, out of every metropolitan region in this country with more than 200,000 residents, every municipality, 81% of them were more segregated as of 2019 than they were in nineteen ninety. Okay, so that's that's especially in like Rust Belt cities like my hometown of Cleveland, like the the segregation is 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 so bad that only two cities in the entire country, (laughs) they marked as actually integrated.
2: That is insane. And
1: let's not make the mistake that, you know, thinking that integration is going to save us. But the point is, is that things in a lot of respects are going backwards On our watch. (laughs) Yeah. And they want us to think that, well, racism is a thing of the past. And I think the real reason behind all this is that racism has been commonly accepted as villainous. They understand how villainous this is. (laughs) Right. That's why, you know, folks get so excited about, oh, you're calling me a racist. And we talk more about that than the actual racism.
2: And you know what else, Jamil? It's like you said it, it's a criminalization of critiques of whiteness. Like that's a very generous way for me to put it. Right. And, and, and I see this criminalization of critiques of white supremacy. You know, I got kicked out of school for taking a library book out of the library. I paid tuition to go to and bringing it back. Right. I got kicked out of school for that. Yeah. But, but the real reason was that I was put on disciplinary probation for having the audacity to walk to my car with my partner in, in college. We go to Chuck E. Cheese to go to work and these fraternities are out there having big day. And they're in blackface, and they're in Afro wigs, and they're in Confederate capes. And one of the people out there was the current governor of my state, who I played ball with throughout all my childhood, Tate Reeves. I get put on disciplinary probation for not wanting to let them call me a nigger, and then I get kicked out of school. And what I'm, I'm, I'm saying that to say, like, there's a history of criminalizing critiques of white supremacy, and really, I think there's a criminalization of critiques of white folk. You know what I'm saying? I just think I, I, I think we, we need to make it clear. But yeah. like again, fam, these are the same people who see, let's be honest, one of the most white people loving men we will ever meet. This is not a diss, this is descriptive. They made a Barack Obama into a racial warrior who was coming for them. Mm-hmm. The, a man who would never, ever, ever, ever call what they did thug-ish. But, you know, would say people looting a, a drugstore is thuggish. And I'm, I'm, I'm just saying this isn't a diss of Obama as much as it is they made that man <laughs> into the racial bad man. They made that man into the man who was coming to get up, a man who would do everything in his power to make them feel like he was not critiquing their whiteness. That is where we are as a, in, in this nation.
1: Pivots me to this essay that you wrote about six years ago and the aftermath of... The white terrorists murdering non-black people during a Bible study at Mother Emanuel, uh, the AME church in Charleston, South Carolina, about black folks and forgiveness and what we are taught and how that teaching of forgiveness you know, basically metastasizes into something that's actually malignant, this shame that we, that we carry with us. What we're seeing is folks like, trying to make people forget the past. And I see something that's connected between, you know, what we were encouraged to do then, which is to pray for our enemies and all that. And right now, when folks are literally passing laws that prevent teachers from teaching about our own history.
2: Yep. And and passing laws which prevent them from learning about their own history. Bingo. That's where I think we have to continually pivot. You know what I mean? It's It's like Yes, I would love to talk about the way this nation and folks in this nation, particularly like white folks in this nation, have violently like assaulted in every which way you can imagine. Black folks, Native folks, Latinx folks. And an accurate assessment of that has to start with the way these people see themselves. So when you have <laughs> lawmakers out there not just saying we're not going to teach his black history but we're not going to tell white kids the truth about where they come from you have a nation that i think at its best can do nothing but hold on for dear life fam because yeah that is that is the core that desire to not teach your children to not encourage your children to revise to go back circular mm-hmm. you teach kids not to revise you got them you got them you teach people not to go back and look Honestly, and assess like how they got here, you got them. And, and that is the pitiful part of it all. Like, besides how mad I get about what they did to my grandma, what they do to you, what they do to me, what they do to the most vulnerable people in this culture. I'm just like, yo, how could y'all do that to your own children? How could you do that to yourself? That's what I feel, you know?
1: And honestly, it speaks to this whole notion of American exceptionalism, despite being the country that incarcerates more people by rate and by number than anywhere else in the world. Right. (laughs) How is it that we can think of ourselves as so great and so infallible that we don't need to fix anything?
2: You know, I was raised by a Christian, you know what I mean? Like my grandmother taught me that the time that you should most concern yourself with revision is after you've gotten something that you think you deserve, after you've gotten what you deserve. Mm. Be most invested in revision because you need to assess why you actually need or want that thing. Is it ethical? What does that thing or that idea do for you? But these folks work opposite. Once you get that thing you think you want or need in the moment, you never need to go back and rethink the ethics of it. You know, I mean, again, I come from very active, political, self-determined people from Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi to be specific. And there's always a tension with with, with our folks about like how much time we spend critiquing and trying to change these people, understandably, because if you change these people, you can change your conditions and how much time we spend convincing and trying to change ourselves to be more what we need for each other. And And I think those things have to go hand in hand. But in my work, I've just been trying to tease through like the history of people trying to make that decision. Like, do we, do we spend our energy trying to change these people? And or do we double down and have faith in the fact that like we have to work? And the reason we are sitting here today, standing here today, talking here today is because of the faithful work of a lot of mostly for us, a lot of mostly black people who were helped by, again, a multiracial group of people in this country. That's I have faith that we can be better. I have faith that we can work harder and and ensure that the people who come after us have more access to healthy choices and second chances. I believe that, I also believe that talking to white people about white people is seductive and and my life can ultimately get you nothing, Mm. right? That's hard. Those two things are very hard for me to sit in, but that's what I'm trying to do with,
1: with my work. Let's take a quick break. But when we're back, every writer, artist, or creator who puts something out into the world has to think in some way about their audience on the other end. But for black writers like Kiyesse and myself, this process often involves some extra steps. We'll explain after the break.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. shopify.com slash
0: this episode is brought to you by state farm you've heard it before like a good neighbor state farm is there but it's more than just a tagline because state farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community and if you're in the market for small business insurance who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: How do we as black people who write about black pain approach a white audience? Right. I think about that question a lot. I, you know, certainly throughout my career have written for You know, a number of different kinds of outlets, you know, but all of them have had white audiences. And I think you can welcome people to read and to take in what you have to say without catering to them. Because I really honestly feel like that insults people's intelligence. And if you want people to actually engage with your work, you have to approach it almost as if they already are engaging with it.
2: Mm hmm. And I think that we are so lucky as organisms in that we can like recollect, like we have the ability to do something and really consider like what that thing we've done is doing in the world and the ingredients of it. And so if we just look at like this, like we are talking today, right? I want to ask us if we have ever been a part of a podcast where all the producers or all the other people were Black The entity was black owned. The majority of watchers and readers would be black and the people talking would be white. No, white people never, ever have to sit in and sustain what it feels like to talk, to work, to think, to produce in the face of a black audience that can not only like give you money, but also critique you if you don't do something right. That is not just some something small fam. The fact that we are here talking to each other lovingly and honest in this space that in some way is made possible by various manifestations of white people and whiteness means something. And what I'm trying to say is like so when I read your work like no matter if it was an MSNBC or Rolling Stone, <laughs> like I do feel like you are like talking to us and I know that you also have to in some way talk to people who might not have a love for us. I don't think that sacrifices the work though, but I think we have to be honest about the ingredients that go into the stuff we produced. And and I think sometimes like having to do the work that we have to do, like the maintenance of audience, I think creates more profundity, but it's Mm -hmm. interesting that it's something that like white writers, white creators, white critical people don't ever have to deal with. They don't have to really sit in what it means to be like subject to an audience's whims of black people.
1: Right. Right. On the flip side, though, while we have the responsibility of maintenance of an audience, I think, you know, white writers and editors and other folks in power in, in this business have the responsibility to ensure that the audience gets a perspective that isn't simply reflected through their own lenses. Absolutely, And, and honestly, that to me is a commitment that goes well beyond having a diversity task force. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes well beyond Having some sort of days off for a particular holiday. I'm glad they made Juneteenth a holiday. Don't get me wrong, but you know we got a unanimous vote on that, but we can't get ten Republican votes for voting rights. You know, and that's again maintenance, not expansion.
2: To consider voting rights, we can't get ten votes to consider talking about voting. You know, what I mean, not even <laughs> not even voting rights. We can't get ten votes to consider having a conversation about voting rights.
1: Right, and meanwhile. On Juneteenth or next Martin Luther King Day, we will see the tweets and the statements saying that they value the sacrifices of all those who have come before us to ensure that every American has a equal and fair access to the privilege of citizenship or something like that. And you had a sentiment in a piece that I recall in which you're talking about being drunk on the antiquated poison of progress. And that to me is one of the biggest moral dilemmas we face as a country, we're faced with folks who want to leave certain things in the past. Don't talk about it. But did you see that Confederate monument to that war hero, Robert E. Lee?
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait,
1: you want to change the name of the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University? <laughs> uh, I mean, how 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 dare you? Like, we're just trying to honor history here. I mean, this is the kind of things that we're Told to swallow. Yeah. And I think the urgency that's going behind this critical race theory thing is based in a realization that no one's, or at least not enough people, are willing to swallow this anymore. Yeah. Last year, if it accomplished anything, it got the discussion out in the open. And Derek Chauvin, like you know, like you, I didn't have anything new to say about that, even after the verdict. But upon reflection now, to me, that was an act that triggered something new. I mean, we've seen Walter Scott shot in the back, we've seen Tamir Rice uh is shot. Right. You know, we've seen so many of these violent incidents or heard them on audio tape. But for some reason that that cracked something in the American consciousness.
2: And yeah, and this is where the grandma in me comes out. You know what I mean? Like, you <laughs> don't know about you, my grandmama's all about. You know, her her philosophy pretty much is you get what you give. You know what I'm saying? And so there's a lot of reasons that I think Chauvin murdering George Floyd meant so much to culture, but a lot of it has to do not just with the pandemic, but Trump's, you know, a generous term is mishandling. But I want to say something much more honest than that. But I'll just say mishandling. I think Trump's mishandling led to this awakening. Like there's no question about that in my mind. They got what they were gonna get. And just like white folk throughout history, there's a backlash to it. You get what you're going to get. And what do you do? You storm a capital because the states and particularly the Republican run states won't refuse to count black people's votes. So you storm the Capitol. That's what's so ill about these folks, man. Like, you know, like the rules are set. They lose according to the rules. And then they get mad because they can't cheat enough. Right. That That's just there's something wrong with that, brother. Deeply, deeply.
1: But at the heart of it, though, they never want to be the villain of their own story. <laughs> you know, racism and bigotry of all types, misogyny, that's always going to be popular with some people. I don't think we're ever going to be fully rid of that. And in that light, I am kind of interested to know what you think of the permanence of racism and how we contend with that, because it's one thing to read about Dr. King. To hear him say, I may not get there with you, knowing that we've made progress beyond Jim Crow, so to speak. But then like to know that we may not get there with not just the next generation, but the generation after that, that's going to be fighting these same battles. How do we as writers, how do we navigate that?
2: I think we I think we make ourselves useful to organizers. You know, I think I think there are people on the ground that are attempting to make things and organize around the exact sort of principles and things we write to and through. Um, and, I, and I know a lot of us do this, but I think we have to continue to be of use to organize. So I think there's lots of ways to do that. One way is to, you know, like if somebody's like uh, if Vox, like he said, do want you write this essay on George Floyd and, and Chauvin. You know, like I might talk to my folks in the Dream Defenders. or I might talk to some folks I know in BLM and be like, Ew, you know, I'm about to do this for Vox what do y'all think I need to say? Mm. That 2015 piece, that comes out because I talked to my people in BLM and I was like, yo, Guardian asked me to do this. What do y'all think needs to be said out here? And I'm not trying to be like these words change the collective consciousness immediately or anything like that. But I think that we need to be part and parcel of organized direct action. And the writerly artistic arm of direct action has always been crucial. So I think we have to do that. Do I think racism in this place is permanent? Yes. But that's not what I'm afraid of, because, like, I mean, I, I think racism, I think empire are permanent. But what I think we can make more permanent is a desire to revise our sort of like initial forays into anti-blackness, anti-Semitism, queer antagonism trans antagonism like I think those things are going to be here but what we have to also get is a desire to look back at like how much of that is in us and a desire to actually like be better going forward so yes I think all of that shit is perpetual but what I also think can be perpetual is, ironically, the desire to collectively revise our investments in those things. And then the question is, if we do collective revision into those things, do we get to a place where truth and reconciliation is not like a one-time, one-day, one-week, one-year thing, but a process that we as Americans want to lose ourselves in? The problem is, if we, as what we call Americans, lose ourselves in a process of restoration and repair that leads to truth and reconciliation, we are no longer Americans. And that is what I think we have to sort of long for. A place where like the Americanisms that make us are something we revise our way out of. And that is not me at all saying like the country needs to die, but Americanisms and the worst of Americanisms absolutely need to decay and die, but they don't do that on their own. We make them. And I think it's okay to ask us to eventually lean out the parts of us that are destructive. And there are lots of parts of us that are destructive. I don't know how you do that if you don't revise. That's just my philosophy like this season. If you don't w- look back at what you've done and the ingredients of who you who you are and what made you do what you've done to hurt yourself and other people, how do you stop hurting people? If you're one of these like, you know, pat yourself in the chest, man, who like, I don't regret anything because if I did anything different, <laughs> I wouldn't be who I am today. Right? <laughs> how can you be different tomorrow? You cannot, right? So yeah. thankfully, it's pretty basic. Sadly, it's really, really, really hard to look back at who you are and say, I need to be better, not skinnier, not happier, but better.
1: At at the heart of it is exactly what you're saying to me. Revision is progress. And people need to understand that. Like my work is animated by nothing more than this quote by James Baldwin. he said, you know, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Mm. That is patriotism to me. right. That's what patriotism looks like. It looks like tough love. right. And listen, I mean, you know, I can't think it's too many people who don't grow up without tough love of some sort. Mm-hmm. Whether it's in your household, whether it's at school, whether it's your coach, you get tough love. right. And if instead of taking it so personally, making it about you. Let's make it about mm-hmm. us. Right. And that to me is essential.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I've just been thinking about this late. You know, I teach Baldwin all the time and I teach that essay that that quote comes from that you read, autobiographical notes. Incredible last graph for that essay. And, you know, the awakening made me realize that I don't think Black American patriotism should be a prereq for criticism. Oh, no doubt. And for so <laughs> long, though, I, I kind of was like, You know, that Baldwin quote was like tattooed on my chest. Like, I love America more than any place in the world. If I I insist on the right to perpetually criticize. Yes. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people I love in this country and in this world who don't love America more than any other place in the world and insist on perpetually criticizing her solely because of what she's done to them. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm I'm criticizing you because of what you have done to me, my grandmama, my mama, my great-grandma, my great-great-grandmama. Not because I love you more than anything in the world, but because I love them. And I think Baldwin's, you know, thing is like, yes, but these people help make America, so we're going to love America. Yep. But at the same time, I just don't want people feeling like, oh, black people who make these critiques of the nation have to, you know, explicitly or implicitly call themselves patriots to be taken seriously. And the craziest thing is that, like, the people who call themselves patriots in this culture are the people who literally want to destroy the air of the country they love so much. The water... Of the country they love so much and the people of the country they love so much so if that is like the definition of patriot i don't want no parts of it no part not one and that's new for me that's something i realized in the last few months they can't have the nation that my grandmama and my great people and your people help make without getting paid they can't have that but they can have patriot shit take it i don't want that shit <laughs>
1: <laughs> I embrace that Baldwin quote, I think, because I actually I do love America, and yeah. I definitely think that listen, at the heart of America are some ideas that work that are worth protecting. That being said, I don't need current leaders to necessarily embody those ideals perfectly in order for me to still believe in them right, and we're talking about faith in works unseen, certainly, the works unseen in this country are equity along racial and all other lines of identity. Preach. So if we're going to have faith in this country that our forefathers, our foremothers have worked so hard to build and to maintain, then I'm going to definitely point out where the holes in the boat are <laughs> before we all sink together.
2: Yes, indeed. <laughs> or, 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 or before we continue sinking together. That's the part, right? Like, cause we, we
1: well, yeah, soaked, We're taking bro. on water now.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we are. <laughs> we definitely are.
1: Okay, we're going to take one more short break, but when we come back, Kiese's memoir, Heavy, is an extremely vulnerable and powerful piece of writing that still resonates deeply with me. And I've always wanted to ask him what it took to confront this struggle on the page. Now, I'm the host of a podcast, so I get to do just that after the break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
1: I wanted to talk about heavy, okay. Both you and I, you know, we husky guys. <laughs> you know, you look
2: like you slimmed down a lot, though, bro.
1: I appreciate that, man. But I'm yeah. uh, shoot. I was two forty five this morning, so uh, that's not that's not my weight goal. <laughs> Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. That's not my weight goal. <laughs> and so, listen, I've struggled with weight issues. I've struggled with body image issues. I don't know why I'm saying it in past tense because it's it's true today. Right. Reading your book, though. It gave me an insight into someone else who I'm like, OK, he is going through or went through things that I can recognize. And it yeah. helped give me some ideas about how to deal with it, about how to cope with it. And I mean, I'm still formulating. I'm trying to help the audience understand what it took for you to confront this, both in real life and then later on the page. Well, I mean, I've always been curious. I always wanted to ask this question. I didn't, know, get, I didn't get called <laughs> on at the LA Book Festival.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it took writing "How Does Olly Kill Yourself?" It took writing "Long Division," and mm-hmm. it took writing probably a hundred other essays to get to where I, I actually could trust my skill to go into something so terrifying. And that something is like an honest exploration of what my body does and what I feel about what it does and what it has had done to it. Like people around our age, we know what it was like to grow up in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. And we started to get all of this vocabulary around white supremacy, around empire, around patriarchy. But at our worst, we didn't connect our actual bodies to those terms. Mm. You know, we didn't we didn't walk our bodies into what patriarchy actually meant for our elbows, for our knees, for our love handles. And so like Heavy was like, all right, I've written these two books that were different and very hard to write. Now I think I finally have the skill to go into something that I kind of wanted to write my entire life. Um, and even then, bro, like I didn't. That book nearly destroyed me. And I know writers say that all the time and I believe them, but you know, yeah. cause I had to talk to my mama about things she didn't want to talk about. I talked to my granny about things she didn't want to talk about. And then I had to talk to reader. I had to talk to you Jamil about shit that like, yeah. I was embarrassed to talk about, you know, but I just have faith that I'd finally got my skills up to where I could do something with it. And, and that's what, that's what got me into it. I had to write two books that were really hard to write in order to even begin to do that book justice.
1: Now, that's, you know, honestly, I think that's actually a good thing for especially young writers to be hearing right now to understand that not only is that kind of preparation necessary to achieve a work like that, to build a work and to put something like that out there, but also that. It's okay to struggle as a young writer.
2: Yes, indeed.
1: It, I mean, that's that's what we. I mean, I I wouldn't want anybody reading my college columns, right? Woo, bro, there's one. I'll I'll tell you later, but I'll okay, but
3: <laughs> woo,
1: I'm just like, what in the world was I thinking.
2: But you were experimenting. Yeah, I was experimenting. That's, that's the thing. We need, to, we need to talk about that part of it, right? Like we were in school and it felt like we had the weight of the race on our back because we got to write these columns and shit. Yeah. But at the end of the day, though, yo, we were young people experimenting with words and ideas, which means we're going to fail. And what sadly also means we're going to not deal with that failure well. But I feel you. Those columns that I wrote in, in 92 to 96, brutal brutality fair.
1: <laughs> but honestly, man, I just look at Heavy as an incredible achievement because what the book helped me to do was to understand how body image and, and and weight from another black male perspective had to do with everything that was going on around me. And I hadn't put together that I was an emotional eater. I hadn't put yeah. together that I turned to you know, comfort food at moments of the worst trial. Yeah. Or at moments where things get really hard. Right. I just I hadn't put it together. You know, I could put yeah. together, you know, talk about the systematic discrimination against peoples all around the world, but <laughs> right. I hadn't put together the fact that I enjoy a pint of Hagen dazs when I'm feeling down. It's changed my whole relationship with food. I, I started to think about my actual diet and the way I think about my media diet. Mm. What am I putting into my brain? Yeah. Do I need to be watching these shootings? Do I need to be watching this particular hearing? Right. Uh do I need to watch conservative media outlets or listen to them or read them? What am I putting in my head?
2: Oh, thank you for sh- thank you for for sharing that with me for like I I feel and I hear it. Yeah. And I think that the flip for me is, you know, because there was a point in my life long time, like 10 years or so, when I, you know, I had a different kind of disordered eating, right? Like I was starving and I was like I I was eating three times a week. I was running at least 18 miles a day. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wasn't sleeping. Bro. But like sometimes sometimes at my worst, I'm like, man, I wish I could get back to looking like that. But to look like that, I had to fucking attempt to kill myself a different way. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't trying to kill myself anymore with with, with the hagen dazs or with the honey buns or with the fried cheese and shit. I'm trying to do the opposite, which is kill myself by not giving myself Things that my body needs, and then congratulating myself that I could get through that. Oh, you could run when you haven't taken a day off in seven hundred days. Good for you. You're hungry as shit, but you're not even going to drink water tonight, much less eat. Good for you. It's just so hard to find what healthy is once you've lived like forty something years, because sometimes you're holding yourself to a standard which was completely unhealthy, but it looks different than you look today. Do you know? And so I feel you, and I hear you. I just think we got to talk about it all.
1: I mean, a year ago, around this time, you know, we, we're dealing with the George Floyd murder. We're dealing with the uprising. There's work stress. There's a pandemic that's still raging. No vaccine yet. I'm going through a divorce. Like, I had a lot going on. And what I was trying to do was expunge that through exercise, through mm. finding, you know, what supplements will work. And I, you know, I dropped down, you know, like 214. Uh, I mean, I wasn't then, you know, something else happens, another emotional crisis, go back up. It just swings back and forth. And my self-worth would swing back and forth with it.
2: Ooh, you are preaching right now.
1: And now I'm two I'm forty 245 and I feel great. But it's not about necessarily the weight. It's not about it's it's about getting the weight off of us. <laughs> right. <laughs> that we cannot see or, or grab around our midsections.
2: <laughs> right. That's right. And you can have a whole lot of weight on you and, and be skinny as a mug. You know what I'm saying? Like you can you can have I a lot too of many weight people
1: on. running from things in exercise. They running. They're running from things. That and was mean, I'm bro. not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. OK, to run away from things that, that you feel like may hurt you. Yeah. Or continue to hurt you. But just understand why you're doing it. Yeah. Just have yeah. Enough time with yourself. enough self-reflection to understand why. You're doing it. That's that's my thing,
2: man. I feel like I owe you for the hour for that uh, psychologist, <laughs> Jamil. Man, how much I owe Barley. you? Man.
1: Let me... <laughs> another book.
2: You owe me another book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got that. I got that. I got a book called Good God that I'm finishing up in the next few weeks. I have a children's book called uh, City Summer, Country Summer is coming out next year, and Heavy. You know, Heavy's being made into a film, so I'm 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 staying busy. I
1: was, it just it just popped in my head, man. I was reading your Vanity Fair essay and you wrote that, you know, first of all, being a black Southern writer in America is your superpower. I'm hoping that's transferable now that I live here. It is. (laughs) Okay, cool. Uh, I know I just wanted to make sure I could opt in. But you wrote that aloneness is our fuel. Loneliness, our fire. Yeah. I, I would say that that just by itself isn't fuel or fire for me. Right, right. How do you take that? solitude and fuel yourself
2: oh man I'm, I, I tap into that blues ethic and again like the, the the flip side of this is that you can drown in this sort of stuff but but the wonderful side is that you can float in it and so for me there's like a blues ethic in really coming from where i come from and you know mississippi is 50th in everything that matters you know what i'm saying like health education Uh, environment, you know, but but we're not 50th in art production. I think partially precisely because we are 50th in so many things. So for me, it means literally like tapping myself into the traditions that made me, you know, I was talking to like the incredible singer, Adia Victoria, Mm -hmm. and Adia was talking to me about listening to one of the people on the stand during the George Floyd Chauvin case. And the person was saying, you see you see George Floyd's fist right there making a fist and he's trying to breathe through his hand because he can't breathe through his neck. And Adia was like, that is what blues has been, right? That is what black culinary Southern tradition has been. Like people being choked out By culture, by actual people, and then attempting to make something. You know, I don't want to be ableist. You can make something without your hands, but she Mm -hmm. was just using the hands as an example. And for me, it's just like when when I'm in Mississippi and I came home for lots of reasons, but one thing I came home for is because my work needed to breathe that Mississippi air again. Now, I might have had enough of that. I might be, (laughs) I might be, I might have had enough of that Mississippi air. I might need to go somewhere else. But at the time, I couldn't breathe in New York. And I needed to come back home and breathe that southern air and yes, that meant being with my family being with my friends, but it also meant sitting my big ass on a porch, feeling that fucking humidified air come through my my mouth into my lungs and hopefully like into my fingers while I'm typing and I don't care what anybody says like a lot of this work we do is intellectual, it's mental. But some of it, fam, is like you just have to trust in something to get the words out. And sometimes we get the words out. Often we get the words out in spite of ourselves. We get the assemblages of words out in spite of ourselves. And so I believe in that. And because I believe in that, I needed to come home and be alone. Like, in addition to being with my family, I just needed to come home and be alone because I did not remember what it was like to be alone in Mississippi anymore. And when I came home and and got alone, I, I finished heavy. I re- revised these books. I wrote City Summer, Country Summer. Uh, so so, so for me, it's just like finding the places in the world that you need to be with people and alone. And for me, Mississippi was, was that place. I don't know if it's that place anymore, but mm-hmm. it definitely was for the last four or five years.
1: Well, I definitely believe that, uh, you know, certain folks and certain places are in our lives for seasons. Uh, and sometimes, you know, those seasons uh, change. But man, I just want to um, Thank you for, you know, all that you're doing and, uh, and for loving us, man, and for believing in us. So thank, thank you. Thank
2: you so much, Jamil, for loving us. And thank you for just constant. I always talk to my people about one of the things that we have to do is be consistent while experimenting with form. An idea, yes. but you consistently experiment with form and idea on a high ass level. And I think that is because you are you, but also because who you are is someone who deeply loves us and wants us to have more than we have today. So thank you. Thank you so much for your work. And thank y'all for making
1: space for me today. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovsky. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of Audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. If you have ideas for future guests or topics... Send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, your family, your barber, whomever, and rate and review. And join us again on Monday for a brand new episode.